Hello, hello, and welcome to Red Letters. I'm your host, David Johnson. This is the podcast where we discuss all things Jesus, the God, the man, the teachings. We skeptics don't believe Jesus was God, and some skeptics don't believe he was a man. But we all agree that there were teachings ascribed to Jesus. And it is to those teachings we now turn. Today's exploration, the intersection between prayer and miracles. Why does God want us to pray? And what should our expectations be when we do? I've got to warn you, this one might go long. It most likely will go long. And I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm going to try to keep it. Uh, though within an hour or close to an hour, <clears throat> and um, I, I will probably fail because, after all, we're talking about two of the big ones. We're talking about prayer and we're talking about miracles, and Jesus happened to have a lot to say about it. And so if you think that this is going to be an exhaustive treatment on that subject, it is not. It will be more of an introduction. However, I am going to attempt to do something that's really hard to do these days. I'm going to try to say some things that maybe you haven't heard before uh, and supply some new insight on the subject of prayer. Wish me luck. Before we jump in, I just want to briefly mention that this is the last week of public episodes of the, uh, of the podcast Red Letters. Uh, it, uh, it goes... Strictly to Patreons from uh, from this point forward, and uh, it has been a privilege to uh, to speak to the public, uh, the broader audience here uh, about some of these things. And I hope that uh, it whets your appetite, and I hope you come along to uh, be a part of some of the uh, future discussions. You can um, you can join the community. And also get your free copy of my latest book, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Moral and Practical Teachings in History, for free when you, uh, when you become a Patreon. Uh, you can get more details at patreon.com slash redletters. There are other great benefits there. I look forward to, to seeing you. And by the way, don't think that this is the last opportunity you will get to hear me bloviate. I will be doing it every week. Uh, for a free-to-the-public podcast Sunday sermon. It's Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon, 4S. There is a sample episode, uh, kind of a preview episode, uh, up there now. And so if you are listening to this podcast in that feed, just keep it locked into that feed, and you will start getting, uh, in February, a weekly dose of 4S. And uh, I look forward to uh, having you as a part of that audience. Once again, get your free copy of the book. You can buy the book on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it directly on my website. Get a free copy of the book uh, over at patreon.com slash redletters when you become a member for $1 uh, per podcast starting in February. And in fact, you can become a member right now. And that uh, you, you won't be charged until the end of February, and you'll only be charged for a podcast starting in February going forward. Uh, one word about that, uh, you, uh, the natural 
the natural tendency would be to uh, put your Patreon cap at $4 a month, and that's great. That's going to work out perfectly for most months. But as you know, uh, because of the way months work, sometimes there are five of a certain day in a month, and uh, I tend to put these shows out on Friday. So some months we'll have a fifth episode. Uh, I, I don't want you to miss that. So you might want to put $5 as your cap because it'll never go over $5. If I do more podcasts uh, than five, uh, I, I'll only charge for five when there's five Fridays a month. Uh, but I put your cap at five just so that you don't miss uh, any episodes there. Once again, uh, patreon.com slash red letters. Uh, let's jump right into this topic because this is a, um, this is a big one. And uh, I want to I want to try to lay some groundwork. So as we dive in, let's dive in with uh, with some groundwork. All right, let's go ahead and begin with uh, something kind of controversial. Uh, can you handle that? Are you okay with a a little bit of controversy? Uh, here we go. There's no command to pray. Uh, <laughs> let me let me qualify that. Um, even controversy has to make sense. God never gave a particular command to pray. That might, that might sound a little funny to your ear. So a question that no one ever asks is, why did we start praying? What are the origins of prayer? Uh, people ask how to pray. They ask how often to pray. You know, maybe what times of day to pray, what occasions to pray. Um, they ask about the details of prayer, but what people never ask about are, are, is the origin of prayer. And the, the surprising insight is that the origin of prayer is not found in the Bible. Not really. Uh, you, can, you can open up the Bible and look for the first time someone prays. But you can read the Old Testament until your eyes bleed, and you will not find a command from God to pray. This is, this is um, a little bit surprising. I, I get that. A after all, we're talking about a God who uh, was okay with and found the time to command his people on what fabrics to wear and not wear, and uh, what they could and could not eat, and uh, who had to be stoned to death as opposed to burned to death, and, well, what slaves you can buy, and so forth. Uh, this, this is a God that was pretty litigious. Uh, the law of Moses is not just Ten Commandments. It's lots and lots of commandments. And uh, a lot of it is very picky and detail kind of stuff. And uh, a lot of people try to separate the law into, excuse me, into two portions. Uh, so you will hear people talk about the ceremonial law as, as one of the portions of law. 
it's, it's an interesting category. Uh, one would think that worship would be a part of the ceremonial law, but we get precious few insights on worship as a, as a day-to-day experience in the Old Testament. And then when we get to Jesus, he doesn't give us anything about prayer and worship either, as far as a command. Now, he has a lot to say about it. So the innovation of Jesus is that he actually talks about uh, details of prayer, uh, why you do it and how you do it and what the expectations were and that sort of thing. You don't get that from the Hebrew Scriptures. But even Jesus doesn't tell you to pray. He doesn't give you a command to pray. But he's talking to people who are praying. They're, they're already praying. So this is not some, some new thing that he has to say, okay, um, let, me, let me give you an, an, an order. I order you to pray. Let me tell you what prayer is. Um, no, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. It's, it's assumed that people were praying. I, I think that was a pretty safe assumption. In, in fact, people were praying. And what Jesus did was uh, flesh out what prayer was and why and how and what the expectations were and that sort of thing. Um, that wasn't really done in the Hebrew Scriptures, but n- neither Jesus as Yahweh or Jesus as a uh, matured embryo, uh, n- neither version of Jesus gave a command, thou shalt pray. Now, I know some of the passages that some of the Christians, especially the, uh, the more fundamentalist type of Christians, would offer to challenge this. And I, and I welcome the challenge. There may, in fact, be something in the Old Testament that I've missed. It's, it's 39 books, and it's been a while since I've read them all. Um, but I am pretty familiar with the types of arguments that Christians make about prayer. And so I've seen some of their defenses of the notion that prayer is a command. And I frankly believe, I would argue that they are largely taking passages out of context and um, reading commands into them that simply aren't there. Uh, And they would uh, see some passages and say, well, you see, but prayer, the command to pray is inferred by this passage, but they're reading necessary inference into a passage where it's not there. Or they would, they would look at an example of where someone is praying, and they would say, you see, this is, this is a, a prescriptive example. Uh, this, this person is praying, and uh, the reason it's recorded in Scripture is so that we uh, would know that we are also supposed to pray. Um, this, is, this is the kind of reasoning that uh, a certain type of Christian uses when they're trying to to make a case or improve something with the Bible that it doesn't really prove. So uh, we, can, we can get into that more, and in fact, hopefully we get into the subject of hermeneutics 
at some point. It's not directly relevant to this subject, but there is a little bit of crossover here. If you believe that you know a, a passage of Scripture that commands people to pray as, as a kind of an original command, um, let me know. Drop it in the comments. Patreon.com slash redletters.com. I'll see all of your comments. You don't have to address them to me. You can uh, direct message me. You can send me an email, uh, redlettersbook at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to, if you want to just keep it private, we can do that too. I'll be glad to have a conversation uh, with you. But um, yeah, I would. Uh, I I will just say I know the passages. I'm I'm pretty sure I know the passages that you would probably want to come up with, and I would argue that those passages really aren't saying what you think they're saying. <laughs> so uh, we would we would end up in a discussion over hermeneutics. Uh, probably more than a discussion over prayer, but uh, I, I welcome that discussion. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite topics. So, um, sure, bring on bring on the hermeneutics battles uh, or conversations or however however you'd like to frame that. But uh, if you just ride with me, ride with me for a moment, I'll add some more justification to the claim. Uh, and I know that this comes as a surprise to a lot of skeptics who uh, this is just as much of a surprise to them as it is to Christians, because most of us skeptics were once Christians. And so what we know about prayer comes from Christians. (laughs) And when I talk about prayer, I often am a little bit sloppy with my language. What I'm really doing is I am giving you the doctrine of prayer that I learned from Christians and that Christians still espouse today. And it is, it is not my place really to tell Christians, well, you're wrong about your doctrine. I, I am just giving the doctrine as it has been presented by Christians uh, for really all my life and including now. Uh, so this, uh, you know, the, the fat middle of the doctrine on prayer is exactly how I present it. And yet here I am saying, uh, probably for the first time uh, in public hearing, Prayer was never commanded by God. Uh, and I, I really, I do challenge you lovingly, <laughs> uh, challenge you to uh, prove me wrong, and I, I welcome being wrong. However, that said, that doesn't mean that God didn't want prayer. So this is where things get a little bit interesting. Uh, God didn't command prayer, and Jesus didn't command prayer because he didn't have to. Jesus, God, didn't have to command prayer. People pray naturally. It it has been going on ever since there have been gods. There there has always been a way to communicate with gods. (laughs) So this is where I'm going to pause for a moment back up, and begin laying some groundwork so that we can work our way, our way forward to what Jesus had to say. Because you're never going to really understand what Jesus said about prayer until you understand a little bit about the origins of prayer. So, um, let me make another kind of blanket statement that might sound a little interesting to you. Prayer 
is, is often thought of as a thing you do as an act of religion and piety. But, but I, think, I think that's reversed. Religion is a thing you do as an act of prayer. Let me say that again. Prayer is not an act of religion. Religion is an act of prayer. All religion is prayer. Again, all religion is prayer. It's just a form of prayer. So what is prayer? What do I mean by prayer? Prayer is a communication with God. And you can call it a one-way communication or a two-way communication. I'll, I'll deal with that uh, here in just a moment. But it is, it is communication from man to God, by and large. Any type of communication, any type of relating to God is prayer. And if you look at what Christians call prayer in the Old Testament, well, it's anytime anyone cried out to God or said some words uh, kind of directed to God or, or for God to hear or in his presence, it, it's prayer. Even though it doesn't follow any kind of formulaic, formulaic pattern, they still call it prayer. Well, I think that it's probably correct if you understand prayer as all communication uh, with God. Uh, prayer, in fact, could probably be done without words. It's, it is your communication with God, your life with God, your community with God, uh, the way you relate to God. So um, if there is a God, you know, one that, one that you create, if you create a God, you have to create a way to communicate with that God. A deist God is useless. It, it makes no sense to create a deist God. I mean, that might help with some of your uh, existential crisis, but it doesn't help you really in, in times of need. Because that's a God who is just out there somewhere. They're not listening to you. They don't care about you. Uh, you could live or die. They're not actually doing things in the universe anymore. They just kind of started the universe and went away. Well, that's a very uninteresting, unsatisfying God. And uh, so there's, there are reasons why there's no great deist movement that's uh, is really shaping the world as, as we know it today. Um, we need gods that are involved. And the reason that we need gods that are involved is because life is really hard. Bad things happen, and we invent gods, uh, you know, hopefully to explain a lot of what's happening in life, but also we invent gods so that we can convince ourselves that there's something that we can do about the things that happen in life. Well, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we do the something about the hard life? Well, we've got to get the God to do it because God is all-powerful. He made everything. He knows everything. And so he can do it. And if he's our good friend, uh, he can do things for us to help us out. Well, but how does, God, how does God know? How do we ask God what we need to ask him? How do we, how do we get him to incline 
his ear and make him inclined to help us out. This is where religion comes in. This is what religion is. It's all religion is. Religion is a formalized way of making yourself right with God so that you can be in relationship and communion with God who can then be in a position to listen to you and help you out when you need help. That is all of religion, and that is all of prayer. That is, um, that's what it is. So um, I want you to understand, at the very least, you don't have to accept my definition, but understand what I mean when I talk about religion and prayer. These, these two things are two sides of the same coin. They're part and parcel with one another. Uh, it's, you know, you, you start with a, a, a world and a life full of problem and hardship, and you invent a God, but it's got to be a God that can help you out. And, and the way that you can get the God to help you out is to make him listen to you somehow. This is the project of pretty much every theistic-based religion. That's the project right there. So, uh, this is prayer. This is why I say, ever since there have been gods, there has been prayer. Because there has been religion. Wherever religion springs up, religion springs up as a response to the need of communicating with the God. Religion is a product of prayer. Uh, So, all right. That, that still doesn't explain why we don't have some, uh, some pretty fleshed-out commands about prayer in the Old Testament. We're starting with the Old Testament before we get to uh, Jesus, because we've already established uh, that Jesus is Yahweh. And so whatever Yahweh actually spoke would have been, should have been considered the red letters at, at any rate. So... Um, why does God not command prayer directly? Why isn't, why isn't there a whole book in the Bible on, on uh, conducting this, this prayerful worship and communication with God? Well, I, I have some speculation on that. Uh, I don't know that I'm right, but you know, after years of study and being a, a, a preacher, I don't I don't claim any particular expertise, but these are these are some of the thoughts that I have based uh, on that. So, in Judaism, it wasn't a direct one-to-one relationship between the individual and God. This is not uncommon, by the way. Uh, in fact, I think uh, I think that was the norm for most. Religions, if not all of them. Uh, God was up there. We're down here. We're always lower than God. And we don't have a direct line of communi- communication to God. Um, we're, not, we're not worthy to just walk into God's throne room and talk to him. There's a pecking order. Uh, the uh, If you think about the... Uh, the Holy of Holies, which was uh, this place in the temple where only the high priests could go. And uh, they went there once a year and did sacrifices. Um, 
something, something like that. Well, this wasn't someplace that every individual could go. Individuals couldn't go there. You would die if you wandered into the Holy of Holies. This was, this was a, a, an absolute off-limits kind of zone. You had to be a special person uh, with uh, very uh, special instructions, very special consecration, consecration for entering the Holy of Holies. Uh, that's, but you, in that Holy of Holies, you had direct access to God, at least as direct of an access as humans normally got. Now, Moses uh, had a special relationship with God. Uh, he, he probably had a, a more special relationship with God than high priests. Uh, so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily point to Moses as an example of uh, the relationship with God. You, you might say it's a foreshadowing, if you're a Christian, you might say it's a foreshadowing of the relationship with God that Christians would have. But Moses actually sat in a tent with God. It's called a literal tent. It's called a tent of meetings, and uh, where he would meet with God, and he and God would speak. God would talk to Moses, uh, the Bible describes it, face-to-face as with a friend. This was, this was simply not done. Now, understand, God could do it. He could do it with anybody. He wasn't, he wasn't limited in any way. He just didn't want to. There was, there was a system for getting to God, and that system went through priests, and among those priests, there was a high priest. So there, were, there was a pecking order. So if you, if you had something to bring to God, you didn't bring it directly to God. I don't know. You, you bring it to God's lieutenants. You bring it to God's man. And God's man then passes it on to God. So there's a middleman. There's an intermediary. Uh, these are called priests, okay? And this is true with all religion with priests. The, the priests are the intermediaries because the people are just too lowly to talk to God. Um, and, you know, so if you, if you want to talk to God, you're not worthy, recognize that. The priests, they're not really worthy either, but, you know, they're people who are made special either because of their lineage or their God touched in some way, and they have to be consecrated for their communications with God and that sort of thing. So, uh, there is a way for humans to communicate with God, but not directly. Not directly. So our modern-day concept of prayer is direct person-to-God communication with no intermediaries. That's not how the Jews understood prayer. They never understood prayer that way. It's not to say that some special individuals didn't talk to God. Uh, David was a, a man after God's own heart. Abraham was considered a friend of God. But these were also very special people that God called out for very special relationships with him. These were not the average people. And, and you should not 
This is a mistake I see uh, Christians making again and again when they want to make uh, certain points about prayer. This was not the average relationship between the average Jew and their God. There was a pecking order if you're a Jew who needs to communicate something to your God. Uh, you go through the priest to do that. There are religions today that still have the trappings of that. Hello, Catholics. Um, that's not to say that Catholics can't pray directly, although you can see the vestiges of that way of thinking as, as Catholics pray to saints, for instance, as intermediaries, because, you know, in their mind, well, the saints are very close to God, and, um, you know, maybe I can get the saint to put in a good word for me. Well, non-Catholics don't believe that we need to get anyone to put in a good word, you know. Uh, if anything, we pray to Jesus, and Jesus puts in a good word for us because he's the high priest. But uh, other, and there are Christians who, uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but some of the formula of prayer, uh, if you want to talk about prayer formulas, is you pray to God through Jesus. Uh, so it's in it's in Jesus' name we pray. Uh, you 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 are using Jesus as your intermediate your intermediary uh, to get to God. And then there there are other people with different formulations where yeah you just pray uh, directly to God. Uh, some uh, allow you to pray directly to Jesus. You know, dear Jesus, uh, you know, hear my prayer. And then there are other Christians who would say no, you don't pray to Jesus, you pray to God. Through Jesus, um, it, it's a whole thing. Uh, let's not get too lost there. For the Jew, though, uh, you went to the priest, and the priest dealt with God on your behalf. Uh, you sinned? Great. You don't ask God to forgive you of your sins. There's a system for forgiving sins. You go to the priest. You make your sacrifice. The priest makes a sacrifice on, on behalf of of the people. So a priest is the intermediary for man to communicate to God. So why is there no instruction on prayer per se? Because the individual Jew didn't really need to do it. That's not how they thought about communicating with God. Their relationship was with God through the priest. So, um, what about the other communication? Uh, because it's, there, it's, it's two ways. It's a two-way street, right? You have to communicate with a God. This is, this is why you have gods. But God also needs to communicate with you. Because there's a problem with gods. There's a problem with all uh, personal gods, which is uh, when you get yourself a personal God and you start communicating with this personal God, life is still crappy. Things still go wrong. It's still bad. <laughs> and um, so you have to figure out what it is you're doing wrong and what it is you need to do. Well, the only way to know what you're doing wrong or to know how to do it better in a way that God will listen to you is for God to communicate with you somehow. But the problem is still there. You're still too lowly. There's still too much of a gap between you and God for God to just talk to you. So 
God needs an intermediary, uh, uses, I won't say needs, but he uses an intermediary, which is, in the Old Testament, a prophet. A prophet is a person who receives from God and gives to the people. He's the intermediary when God wants to talk to the people. God does not typically, I don't want to say ever, I'm sure there's some, some example in there where he does, but God does not typically talk to the average person directly. He doesn't do that. He talks to the prophet, and the prophet talks to the people. So uh, even if a person is not officially called a prophet, uh, like Moses saying, God spoke to Moses. There are examples where God is completely narrated out in Scripture, written by Moses, supposedly, where God says to Moses, okay, Moses, I want you to tell the people ABC. And then Moses goes and uh, gathers the people and he says, God told me to tell you, uh, and then he'll recite the, the thing again. That's a prophet. That's, that's what a prophet is. And you could say, well, you know, why didn't God just communicate with all the people directly himself? Why does he need Moses? I don't know. That's the way he does it. <laughs> uh, and there's this idea that, once again, there has to be some line of separation, but we can call it sin, uh, if you want to get theological, between God and humans. But for God to be meaningful at all, there has to be a way to cross that barrier. And so, for you to communicate with this God through the sin barrier, you go through the priest. For God to communicate to you, he goes through the prophet. Priest, prophet. In either case, you don't, there's not this focus on individualized prayer. All right. Um, a, lot can, a lot more can be said there, but... Let's let's um, let's roll the tape forward. Uh, so let's get to Malachi. It's the last uh, book of the Old Testament. Yeah, Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. The last uh, of the minor prophets, and then the next book of the Bible is Matthew. There's nothing chronological uh, about the way the books uh, are arranged in the Bible, but the way they are arranged is still telling an editorial story. So uh, I think it's proper, at least editorially, to say that between Malachi and Matthew, there are roughly 400 years of silence. God, God is gone from the people. Why? Because the last prophet is dead. And how does God communicate with the people? He communicates through prophets. This, this was pretty well established by this point. The way God communicates to people is through prophets. prophets. So what happens when the last prophet dies? And there are no more prophets. Does it mean there's no more God? Well, I don't know, but it's, it's definitely the end of an era. And so by the time we get to John the Baptist, no one alive for, for, 
what, 20 generations has seen a prophet. They're just old stories at that point. They're no prophets. So we get to um, John the Baptist. Let me just say, uh, I'm sure that there were lots of people wandering around the countrysides and the wildernesses uh, calling themselves prophets, speaking in the name of God. But they didn't get the acclaim <laughs> that, uh, that the other prophets got, so they weren't really considered prophets. John the Baptist would have been the first one of note in 400 years. All right, that's a long time. That's, uh, that's a long time. Okay, I'm not... Just spare me... Uh, Spare me the emails and the comments about the Apocrypha and the Maccabees and such. I'm not dealing with those. I'm just I'm dealing with the the heart of the canonical scriptures. <laughs> okay. So um all right. So Jesus comes on the scene at a time when there are no prophets. And the whole enterprise of religion is prayer or communication with God. So what happens when this major tentpole of your religion, prophets, doesn't exist anymore? What happens to your religion? What happens to your relationship with God, whom, whom you, whom, whom, who cannot communicate? With you. You haven't heard from him in a long time. Well, nothing good, I can tell you that. Bad things happen to the Jewish religion, and part of the reason why bad things happen is because there were three diasporas. They were they were dispersed, conquered, um, sent away from their land, and they became, I don't know, gypsies, uh, vagabonds throughout the throughout the world. Uh, you had three major diasporas. Who knows? There may have been more. But uh, we know about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. Three major uh, diasporas. By the time we, um, we are, you know, the Persians are done with them, there, there really is no Judaism anymore because there are no Jews anymore. Not really. Not, <laughs> not pure Jews. Uh, and part of the Jewish pride was the purity of their race and their their perfect line and so forth. And this is why it's so important to Jews to pretend to be able to trace lineage back to uh, some great king or other uh, to prove their their purity and to convince themselves that you know they're still a people. They're not by then, but that's that's fine. They're a people without a land. Uh, a kingdom without much of a king that anyone cared about. Everything about Judaism was just, uh, you know, allowed as figurehead by whoever was ruling them at the time. So by the time you get to Jesus, there are no prophets, but you still have priests and you still have high priests. So that's still there, yay. Uh, and you still have a temple. Kinda, but it's a it's a sad, sad, pale excuse of a temple. It's not anything like what the temple 
once was. Once again, it's, it's a thing that was allowed by their betters, by their rulers. And, and you can imagine that you know, they, they weren't given the kind of autonomy that they would really need to be the people that they would want to be. Furthermore, since everyone was scattered abroad, there were people who had never been to the temple. Well, guess what? You needed to go to the temple to make sacrifices every year. This was a part of being a Jew. Except we know that people weren't going to the temple anymore outside of Jerusalem. Because when Jesus uh, went to Jerusalem for the first time with his disciples, this was their first time in the city. They'd never been there. They've never made a sacrifice in the temple before. Judaism was effectively dead, probably for a very long time. Remember, it's been 400 years since they heard from a prophet. So a lot of things had changed. Um, To give you an example of one of the things that changed, just ask yourself, you can do the research, I'm not going to do it for you here, I'm not going to talk about it, although it's fascinating. Ask yourself, where did the synagogues come from? Now, search throughout the entire Old Testament and try to find a synagogue, you won't find it. But you get to Matthew, and the synagogue's a big deal. But what the heck is a synagogue? And it just comes out of nowhere. This, this synagogue is kind of a, a temple away from the temple, if you will, the congregation um, in places where there's no temple. <laughs> and um, this, was, this was, you know, one way to, I guess, keep Judaism alive-ish, kind of. But these are people who uh, apparently didn't have relationship with priests or uh, sacrifices or any, any number of things. It wasn't Judaism anymore. It just wasn't Judaism. What was being called Judaism at the time of Jesus wasn't anything like Moses' Judaism. Just a completely different animal. So, um, this, is, this is a problem. Because, you know, go back 400 years, and, and then maybe 1,000 years before that, the Jews knew who they were, and they knew who their God was, and they knew how to communicate with him, and they knew how he communicated with them. Their religion was intact. Therefore, their prayer life was intact, because prayer is communication with God, which is uh, facilitated through religion, and that was all intact. By the time Jesus comes along, none of it is intact anymore. In my opinion, This is why Jesus had so much to say about prayer. We're we're getting very close to understanding something very important about prayer and Jesus' relationship with prayer. So if their religion is in shambles, and they're not communicating with God, and God is not communicating with them, Judaism, uh, as it was once known, is practically dead. You've got to come up with some redefinitions of what Judaism is if you want to keep uh, worshiping and being Jewish. 
that's not easy without a temple. <laughs> you know, the temple was destroyed in 70, but it was you know, technically destroyed in spirit a long time ago. Um, and the handwriting was on the wall. Uh, whatever Judaism was in the stories is not what it is now. And if we are going to persist as a going concern for future generations, we have to evolve and become something else. We have to redefine what it means to be a Jew in this modern reality, because it's very clear, it's very clear that we are never going back to the glory days. It's just not going to happen. So can we be Jewish without all of the trappings of religion that allows us to communicate with God and for God to communicate with us? Can we do that? And I believe that that was the project of Jesus, at least a part of the project of, of Jesus, or the the collection of people who uh, you know com- combined, uh, we might call Jesus in the same way that we probably have a collection of of people and writers that combine that we call Moses. Um, am I tipping my hand there uh, for something else? Yes, I'm a mythicist. Uh, deal with it. I don't. I don't. Talk about Jesus, though, from the perspective of of Mythos here. Red Letters really is just dealing with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, And so, whoever Jesus was, don't care. I'm just dealing with the teachings. But I can understand the teachings, even if there's no particular person who matches the description of the guy wandering around in, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, that said... Jesus is just one of the people, and probably one of the many people, um, who are trying to redefine Judaism in a way that makes it make sense. And uh, just to give you an example of this very thing going on today in other religions, Islam is going through a renaissance. Because Islam cannot be the the warrior religion that it started off being. It cannot be that. It cannot be Muhammad's religion. It was a religion from a very different time. Many of the ideas are embarrassing to Muslims today. Um, And so there's a battle going on within Islam for the heart and soul of Islam. How are we going to continue being Muslim in, in the current modern reality going forward, they're going through this redefinition right now. You can, you can see it in real time. Another religious group that's going through this uh, transition is Mormonism. The Mormons cannot be the racist, sexist, polygamists that they started out being. They can't be that. Pedophiles, did I mention? They can't be that anymore. That, that can't be a part of their history. They, they have been in the process of rewriting their past <laughs> and, and rewriting their future 
to write out some of these things or explain away some of these things so that they can be mainstream because they have politicians that they want to be president and senators and so forth who are Mormons. You can't do that in this current environment and be the original Mormons. You just can't do it. And so they have been in a transition to, to redefine what it means to be Mormon in the, in the current day. Now, I think, uh, to a greater degree, Christianity is going through the same thing. There, uh, there's a, a fight over the heart and soul of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian in this day and age? We, we, are, we, we have new enlightenment that the people in the first, second, third century did not have. We know things that they did not know, and we have societal realities that they did not have. How can you be a Christian and have a, a vital, meaningful movement going forward? So Christians are, are in the process of redefining uh, a lot of things. This is where Judaism was. In fact, I, I would say they were further down the road than either Christians or Muslims or, or, or Mormons are today. They were further down that path because they just didn't have anything left of what they needed to be Jews. So Jesus did a lot of redefinition. So what were some of the redefinitions? Well, we start with uh, the temple. The temple was maybe the most visible sign of Judaism. You couldn't be a Jew without the temple. It wouldn't mean anything. You couldn't have a Jewish religion without the, the, the temple. And so Jesus is said to have said something to the effect that, um, yeah, you may have heard that you worship here, you go to that mountain, uh, you make your sacrifice there, but, but no more. No more. The day is coming and is now here where you will not go to this place or that to worship the Lord. But it is within your heart. It is very, it is very near. In, in fact, it's within your heart. So Jesus kind of defines the temple out of existence. Doesn't matter. You can't get to the temple. You've never been to the temple. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're still okay with God. The new temple's within your heart. Well, what else is he going to say? That's what you have to say. <laughs> you, you have to say that because you have people who have never been to the temple but who are still trying to be Jewish. Uh, you have Paul. Uh, maybe, maybe Paul's the first one who gives this message. I don't know. But you have uh, Paul saying that your body is the temple of God. You don't need a building anymore. It's you. You are the temple. Well, that's one of the ways to solve the problem. Uh, you just, you're, you're the temple. All right, so um, how else can you redefine things? Well, um, you don't need a priest anymore. You, you, don't, you don't need a middleman you are direct sons of God. You're, you're direct descendants. He's your children. You're my brothers. You are my family. 
my my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, uh, you are God's direct children, and you can go to the Father directly with confidence. This is a new message. The Jews did not routinely go directly to God. That's not how they did it. But of course, uh, if you if you're nowhere near a temple, you're probably nowhere near a priest. So how do you communicate with God? How do you get your sins forgiven? Well, okay, you don't you don't slaughter a bull and goat anymore, uh, or you don't bring a sacrifice to the temple uh, and have them buy a bull or goat to slaughter. No, you, okay, I get that you can't do that. You have a direct relationship with God, and you can just ask for forgiveness. Furthermore, you can forgive your brothers and sisters, so they don't need a priest. You can do it. Forgiveness can be individual. And and if you forgive someone their sin, their sin's forgiven. It's forgiven. You don't need the priest anymore. It's redefined. Because these people don't have access to a priest. <laughs> so what else are you going to say? That's, uh, it's brilliant. Genius. Um, that is exactly what you have to do. Uh, well, what about prophets? We're kind of short on prophets. Uh, God, God might have instructions for us. Uh, it's not like we've got Bibles we can't read. Uh, <laughs> what's, uh, how's, how's God going to communicate with us? Well, the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about it, guys. I'm here with you now. But I'm going to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the Holy Spirit with you. And the, human, the Holy Spirit will be in your heart, and he will be as an advocate with the Father to you. Uh, and so there you go. You don't need prophets anymore. God can communicate directly with you, or kind of indirectly, really, because he's communicating with the Spirit, who then communicates with you. But if the Spirit lives within you, don't get lost there. God is able to communicate directly with you now. This is an innovation. This is new. This is not what Judaism uh, taught. But you don't have any prophets anymore. So if Judaism is going to be a thing, you've got to do this. You have no choice. You've got to redefine the whole religious enterprise. And in fact, what Jesus does, rather than presenting a new religion with a new set of rules— he kind of does away with religion. It's not religion anymore. It's just community. And, and you each have your own individual relationship with God, and you don't need a priest to forgive sins. You don't need a, a priest to go to God and ask him for things, and you don't need a, a prophet to uh, have God communicate with you. You're fine. Well, what about my enemies? What about, what about when I need some supernatural intervention? Don't worry. There are miracles. We can, we, can, we can do miracles. So you don't have to worry about whether God comes down and, and brings manna from heaven. You know, you, you guys can do it. You can do it. You can, uh, you know, my disciples, they can raise the dead, and, and then they can lay their hands on other people who can do this sort of thing. Don't worry about it. You're not going to lose your God or, or the power that God brought. Um, and it's, it, there's a way of of thinking about having everything that you once had except without the religion. This was the enterprise of Jesus, to redefine Judaism in a way that it could live on in the, in the modern world, what was, what was modern contemporary to him at the time. Because by the time he came along, Judaism was 
already dead for all intents and purposes anyway. In the Judaism we have today, it looks nothing like the Judaism uh, that we had in the ancient Jews. Now, they had a resurgence. Um, No need to talk about that either. Uh, The Judaism of the first century, though, that needed some help. And so Christianity was considered a sect of the Jews. It was just another Jewish cult. And I, and I suspect there were any number of Jewish cults, but uh, when it was small, it was just another Jewish cult, just another group of people trying to redefine Judaism and to figure out how to be Jews with all of, without all of the Jewish trappings. And I think they had the best set of ideas, and that's partly why they survived, because uh, other ideas still relied on some of the old trappings to be Jewish. <laughs> and Jesus said, yeah, you don't need any of that. You don't need any of that. And so this, after an hour, <laughs> is where we come to prayer. But what we should really call it is prayer 2.0. The prayer that you think of today is prayer 2.0 because the Christians had to find a way to communicate with God and to have God communicate with them without the intermediaries, and without religious trappings. And that is why Jesus had so much to say about prayer 2.0. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to next. Let's have a quick mention of dating. No, not that kind of dating. I mean, dating as in the dating of the Gospels. The reason this comes up in this discussion uh, is not random, although I I know that it feels very random, but it's important. If you think back on the Olivet Discourse, this is one of the most important speeches that Jesus makes, and I do not cover it at all in the book. Uh, I thought that it would sidetrack things a little too much. It's, It's really important, though, and it's central to prayer. But it's also central to the question of when the Gospels were written. So if you hadn't thought about this before uh, and you have this conversation long enough, you will. uh, It'll come up. So um, the Gospels, uh, generally, the, the consensus is that they were written 70 AD and after, sometime between 70 and 110. That's a broad range. The fact is no one knows when the Gospels were written. We simply don't know. But uh, the conservative branch of Christianity, in particular, opts for an earlier dating, especially for Mark, since the general consensus is that Mark is the first gospel. And Mark has one of these predictions of the fall of the temple. This is is what's so important about the Olivet Discords. It predicts the fall of the temple. And because Judaism is largely a temple religion, it predicts the fall of Judaism, the fall of religion, the fall of life as you know it. And so um, non-conservative Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars seem to be content to make the dating mm, roughly 66 to 70 as the the first book written, and then everything else after 70. Well, what happens in 70? Well, we have the fall of the temple. So 
what scholars uh, sometimes say, it's a bad argument, and people who are not scholars uh, would sometimes say, is since prophecy is impossible, and these uh, books have Jesus making a very specific prophecy, then these had to be written after the fact or around the time of the events happening. And then you're just writing the events into the mouth of Jesus at that point. And conservatives say, oh no, this is prophecy. And they they need this to be prophecy so much that they push the dating of the Gospels back, in some cases, all the way back into the 50s. They need this to happen. Uh, where do I fall? I fall uh, 70s and after. Uh, surprise, surprise. But I, that's not actually because of an atheist. I, I uh, you know, the scholarship that I could access when I was a Christian seemed to point to post-70s. And so I've been a post-70s guy for uh, most of the time. It doesn't matter. I don't want you to get caught up in this debate too much uh, because Christianity definitely started before the fall of the temple. So it's among all things possible that the gospels could have been written before 70. It does not hurt you skeptics. And it does hurt you to make a bad argument based on, uh, based on this uh, idea that prophecy is impossible. Now, I actually believe that prophecy is impossible. And therefore, the Gospels were written after the 70s. I, I believe that that's the case, but that's not a particularly scholarly argument. <laughs> I think the best scholarly argument is we don't know. And we should probably be content with that answer. But there's so much emotion tied up into when these Gospels were written. So they could have been written before, and it wouldn't change anything. This is, this is kind of what I want to convey here. Uh, many scholars, even some conservative scholars, will allow for Mark being written in 66. Okay, so that's before the fall of the temple. So they can have a latish date, but it still gets them in under the wire. But you know what happened in... 66, that was the beginning of the first Jewish-Roman wars. It would have been trivially easy for any uh, watcher of events contemporary to the times to say, we are going to get our butts kicked. <laughs> there is no way that the Jews can win this war. The Jews are going to sack Jerusalem. They are going to uh, utterly destroy the temple. They are going to raise it to the ground so that not one stone stands upon the other. This would have been easier to predict than football scores. And we predict those with startling accuracy. So um, this is this doesn't have to be a prophecy in the mouth of Jesus. It's just a prediction at that point. Uh, so even if the, the Gospels were written before, it's easy to put that prediction in the mouth of Jesus. Now, like I said, Christianity was around before the Jewish wars. And Christianity had already walked away from the temple. This is That's fine. Of course it had. Because Judaism, even in the 30s, was in shambles. The temple 
was in shambles. The temple was basically controlled by the Romans, <laughs> and the Jews were ruled by a, a Roman figurehead, really. Uh, it wasn't anything like the Judaism that Jews were proud of. The, and the temple was corrupt. They, they, uh, many of them thought of it as a very corrupt organization by then. So there, there are good reasons for Jesus. Let's say there was a, a Jesus or the composite Jesus walking around in the 30s who would say, we've got to come up with a religion. We've got to find a way to do religion that is separate and apart from this temple because this temple is dying. It's a crumbling structure that cannot support religion going forward. So for you skeptics out there who believe that a late dating of the Gospels is necessary in order for you to skeptic properly, it is not necessary. It's absolutely not necessary. I happen to believe it's the case, but it's not necessary. So I am going to speak now with, with this in mind that the Gospels were written post-70. This, this chronology is important uh, because when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and what's going to happen after that, from the writers of the gospel's perspective, it had already happened. This also explains why the gospels were written so late. Let's, uh, let's give the uh, conservative Christians their due for just a moment and say that the earliest Gospels were written in the 50s, and that they were written between, say, 50 and 65. This is absurd, I think. But let's just pretend that that's even possible. You should still ask the question, why did it take 20 to 25 years for the Gospels to be written, for, for anyone to start writing the Gospels? That's still a long time. Can you think about what you were doing in your life exactly 25 years ago. I mean, in broad strokes, sure you can. But in specifics, to write uh, an accurate memoir, I, be I bet you can't. It's a long time. That's a very long time. And so you still have to ask yourself, why did it take that long for someone to write this stuff down? Well, the 50s don't make a lot of sense to me, but the 70s do make sense. So why wait until the 70s before writing a gospel? Well, between, let's say, the 30s, uh, in fact, let's say between 1 and 66, you still had a piece of Judaism surviving. You had the temple, and you had priests, and you had Pharisees, and you had people that were devoted to this system, even if it was an obviously crumbling system, it still stood in some form, and there were people who could profit from it and benefit from it. In the 70s, that was gone. You didn't have that anymore. It didn't exist. And so for a lot of people, no temple, because it's a temple religion, no temple, no religion. And, and they're completely lost now. We've been predicting it for a long time. We've been saying that uh, this structure uh, around the temple simply can't last. It's unsustainable. And now the moment is here. And now is the time when people need 
They need a religious foundation because the old one is gone. And this explains why Jesus spends so much time talking about prayer and miracles. And it was almost never discussed in the Old Testament. This is why. And this is why we get the Gospels when we get it. Because we need prayer 2.0 at this point. Religion 2.0. We've got to have it or else we've got nothing. So I, I would say that the Gospels were actually written contemporary to the events that triggered them. But those events were not the birth and life and ministry of Jesus. The events were the Jewish war and the fall of the temple. Okay, let's look at uh, some of what Jesus taught. Where to begin? We're going to start with Luke 18, which is the parable of the persistent widow. And uh, I'm just going to read uh, uh, a few verses from the beginning of the chapter. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of this city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? Okay, <clears throat> this is, I believe, one of the most important passages about prayer that is. And once, you, once you've taken in all of the groundwork that I've laid, you can kind of see this as foundational. Also, I, I think you shouldn't read this as a literal kind of thing. Yes, it's a parable, but th this unjust judge being compared to God, I don't think that Jesus is saying... You know, God is like an unjust judge. <laughs> uh, now, I have heard Christians provide sermons that talk about it in just this way, in a very literal wooden reading. And so, you know, if I talk about it that way sometimes, it's because that's how Christians talk about it. I just think that Christians are doing bad hermeneutics at, at that point. God is not like an unjust judge. Also, I think the analogy was... Uh, was terrible to begin with. Uh, so the writer doesn't want to put in your mind that God is like an unjust judge. But how is he like the unjust judge? Uh, that this this widow who is crying out for justice because she was clearly wronged in some way. We're not given the details, but it's a parable. It doesn't matter. She was wronged in some way. Uh, she took her dispute to the judge, the judge dismisses the case, and she keeps going back and keeps going back and pestering and pestering and pestering until the judge says, look, I don't care about God, I don't care about her, 
but she's driving me nuts. And so I've got to give her justice just to get rid of her. And what Jesus is saying is that you should be that persistent with your prayers to God. You should be that persistent. This opens up a lot of questions about prayer that I don't think that Jesus was intending to open up, but it does open it up to a lot of questions uh, about what's going on here with prayer. For instance, why would you need to ask God for something more than once? If he's going to give it to you, why doesn't he just give it to you? Why does he have to act like an unjust judge where the woman is forced to go to him again and again and again, day and night, constantly, before he says, okay, all right, you win. Is that really the game that we're supposed to be playing? Is that really how we're supposed to think about uh, God and prayer? Well, I think there's a bigger picture that Jesus is trying to paint. It just just doesn't do it very well. But I think there's a, a bigger picture going on here. So what Jesus is really saying is, you know what? I know that you're in a bad situation right now. You're under the thumb of the Jews. And very likely, uh, the last vestiges of your religion are going away. Okay, the temple is done for. And so now you're crying out for justice. And you keep crying out, and you keep crying out, and you're growing weary, and it doesn't look like God is hearing your prayer. Now remember, I, I think this happened after the, um, the uh, sacking of the temple. So this is, a, this is something that Jesus really needs to say. This is a message that he really needs to give, uh, which is, look, it looks like things are at their, their darkest. Don't give up. Don't give up on religion. You, you, you have to give up on the Judaism that you once knew, but that doesn't mean you have to give up on God. God is still there. God still wants to help you. He will still give you justice. Like the widow who's seeking justice and talking to a judge, and it seems like it's falling on deaf ears, it's not. That's, that's the thing, I think, that Jesus is trying to say. So, like the widow, you have to keep asking. You have to keep persisting. Don't give up on religion. Don't give up on God just because it seems like God is dead. God is not dead just because the temple is dead. This is a new message, and this is, this is the message of Jesus. You've got to persist, and if you do, you will get your prize. You know, God will surely come back with a reward, but how many people will be faithful at that time? This is what Jesus says. Also laying the groundwork for the idea that not very many people are going to get the reward. Why? Because they weren't faithful to the end. They, they lost faith. They lost heart. And God doesn't want you to lose faith. He wants you to persist in believing in him, no matter how things look. No matter the, the fact that things are at their worst and you've lost your temple, and certainly in your lifetime, you're never going to get it back. Don't stop believing. Don't quit 
on God. And that's prayer. That's prayer at its at its most raw form is your way of presenting your faith in God. It is your religion. You have a relationship with God and you maintain that relationship with God through prayer and faith. Don't stop. Even if it looks like you're not getting what you want, you are going to get it. God is going to come through. Don't worry about what else is going on. Okay, so that's the, that's the message. And I think that's the most significant thing that Jesus had to say about prayer and about religion in, in his time. But like I said, uh, when, when Christians look at that uh, today, they talk about this parable in a very problematic way. Uh, this is actually, I think, writers trying to explain why your prayers aren't being answered and, and why you shouldn't give up. But they have to deal with a very real problem that there are lots of people praying, lots of people calling out to God, and he's not answering. So we have this story uh, back in the time of uh, Moses, where the people of God fall into captivity by the Egyptians. And they're praying and crying out to God, and they are enslaved for 400 years. This is a very long time. <laughs> this is a very long time. There has been no God for them for 400 years, and the only thing they know is Egyptian captivity. That's it. That's what they end stories. So they're trying to maintain their identity in these stories. And eventually, God hears their cries and comes through. But you've got to think about all the generations from the beginning of the captivity to the time when God comes through that died in captivity, that cried out to God and they got no answers. And the message, don't stop believing. This is, this is the message that Jesus is echoing here. You are in captivity. You're, you're going to be crushed. This is, this, is, this is bad news. It's bad on toast. But all is not lost if you don't stop believing. And, and the way you demonstrate your belief is through prayer. Okay. Let's uh, let's take a look at something else Jesus had to say. Let's uh, go to Matthew six, and let's see five. We'll start at uh, verse five. Read a couple of these verses. Uh, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they have to stand. I'm sorry, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. Um, Christians often pull out this part, uh, they stand on the street and pray because they want to be seen. But you know what he also says? He says they, they pray in the synagogues. 
they stand and pray in the synagogues. In other words, they're praying at church because this would have been church for for most, if not all Jews at that time. Jesus seems to be saying that saying prayers in the public assembly is is wrong. That's not what I want. <laughs> he, he calls that hypocritical. Um, think about prayer for a moment. It's, it's literally one of the centerpieces of the modern-day worship service. We love to have preachers stand in the synagogue and pray long, elaborate prayers that are that are almost as elaborate as the sermon and they get a singular response as the sermon the prayers are like little sermons so let me just read that again and when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others now it seems to maybe eliminate street preachers too, but okay. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Some translations would say, go into your closet. And we get the phrase, uh, your prayer closet. Go into a small, dark space. Is the idea. Go into your room and shut the door. Why? Because no, you don't want anyone seeing you doing this. This is a private thing. Pray to your father who is in secret. Some translations here say, pray to your father who is invisible. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is a huge contrast to the way we view prayer today. Maybe I'll get to this um, by the end of this. But the important thing here is that Jesus is telling them the time of public prayer is over. It's over. Now, why is it over? Well, let me, let me commentate for a moment. I think it's over because the temple is already gone. And what you have is Roman rule at this point. And so it doesn't make sense to make a show of your Christianity after the Romans have basically uh, made a war. Uh, I'd say Christianity. It doesn't pay to show your Judaism or your Jewish religiosity because we just, we just sacked your city and your temple. And to continue to show these outward signs of this religion that we just stomped down might get you killed. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a good idea anymore. You can't go you can't go pray in the temple. So in the synagogues, you know your little meeting houses, don't do that either. Don't make a public showing of it. Do it in secret. Go underground. I think that's the the practical message here. I've not seen that from anyone, though. Everything that I have said so far are things that I've 
bits and pieces that I've you know picked up from other sources. This one is just me, so um, could could be the case, might not be the case. We'll never know. But I I think there's a practical reason why Jesus would say this. But just sticking with the theology or getting back to the theology of it. It seems a very interesting thing that what Jesus is saying, you know, since prayer is religion and religion is prayer, that your religion, your prayer life should be a secret. People shouldn't know about it. People shouldn't see you do it. They should never hear you pray. (laughs) They should never, you should never, um, you know, leave work and, you know, go outside uh, in a visible place and get on your hands and knees and, and clasp your hands and pray. You're making a public spectacle out of prayer. You, you shouldn't uh, stop as you're going, uh, as you're celebrating in the end zone and put your hands up to God and put your hands together and show a sign of prayer out on the football field. You're making a spectacle of your religion. And in the same vein, you shouldn't do it at church either. Prayer is a private thing. Your relationship with God, which is what prayer is, is a private thing. It's not something to be worn outwardly on your sleeve. The outward sign of your relationship with God, the only outward sign is the way you love one another, that you love one another in community. It's all about community at this point. It's not about these outward signs of religiosity. Religion is now a private thing. Your prayer is now a private thing. Um, okay, let me, uh, let me pick up uh, the reading. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this seems to contradict what Jesus uh, said uh, earlier, about being persistent and praying again and again and again and again for the same thing. It seems like, you know, heaping up words and using many words. Um, You can deal with that. Um, In this particular moment, though, he's saying, don't do that. You don't need long prayers. And he's going to go on to to demonstrate the kind of prayer the the famous Lord's Prayer. We're not going to talk about that today. Some other time. But um, yeah, don't don't um, think that your many words will will be heard, or that that's influencing God in some way. Don't be like them. He uh, who's them? The Gentiles. So. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And this is an interesting, an interesting thing to say because Gentiles were non-Jews. So what were the what were the Gentiles praying for? Who were they praying to? Well, like I said, all religion is prayer. And at some point, um, you have to find ways to talk to your gods. <laughs> And so the prayer is just a primary function of religion, or one might say religion is a primary function of prayer. So, so the Gentiles, anyone who has gods, are, are praying. And, you know, you can see various examples of different religions and different gods in, in different kinds of prayer. So uh, Jesus is railing against that. 
Uh, he says, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. All right, so once again, this this seems to be in direct contradiction to what he said earlier about keep asking. It may not seem like you're getting it, but ask over and over and over again. And here he says, yeah, don't, don't. Don't use so many words and long phrases and uh, all of that uh, as if you were going to be more heard because God knew what you needed before you even asked. So you, you just don't have to keep doing that in order to get God's attention. Um, maybe someone in the comments can help me reconcile what seems to be a contradiction between what Jesus says about the frequency of your prayer here and the frequency of your prayer in Luke 18. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your explanation. Uh, Matthew 7, uh, starting with uh, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Okay, before we move further, I just want to say this is talking about prayer. Certainly prayer is in view. Uh, and so we'll read a little bit further, and maybe that'll be uh, clearer. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or, he, he says, now he's, he's about to analogize to, to make this clearer. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Right? This is not just about prayer. It's about uh, supplicatory prayer. It's prayer of supplications. It's asking for stuff. <laughs> All right, this is, this is literally what, what this is referring to. Um, so let me read that again. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil which I, I think is a, an unfair dig here, but if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the heart of supplicatory prayer. That is the kind of prayer where you ask for things. Because... Once again, this is at the heart of what prayer is. This is prayer. It is your relationship with God. But why do we invent gods? We invent gods because we need gods to do things for us. First of all, we need explanations for why things are the way they are. And then uh, we need gods to help change things in our favor. Jesus understands this, and he says, when you come to God... You are going to receive. You're, you're going to get the things, even though it may not seem like it at the time. You're going to get it. So you ask for bread, and, you, and maybe you got a stone. Maybe your life is, is full of stones right now. But you're going to get the bread, okay? Because God's not evil. He's good. And so even though you don't have the bread, keep asking. You're going to get the, the bread. God knows how to give good things to those who ask him. This seems to be um, a basic expectation 
set out in prayer. Now go back to uh, the key phrase here, for everyone who asks, receives. Now, uh, Christians own prayer today know that this is simply not the case. This is is just not true. And so what they say is that uh, everyone who asks gets one of three answers, yes, no, or not right now. Well, that doesn't mean that you received then. <laughs> so um, that's a that's a completely different thing. That's a that's a rewriting of what is said here. What Jesus is trying to reassure his followers is that even though it doesn't appear that God is listening to you and that He's going to give you the good things that you're asking for, be persistent. Don't lose faith. He will. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying yes, no, or not right now. He's saying he will. Okay, uh, let's see. Mm, okay, I think I think that's good. For this, I'm uh, I'm looking at some other passages, and I think I think I think that's good for now. Um, what are what are two other things though that I want to say about prayer? Because uh, this this last passage that we read opens the door uh, of the next piece of the topic, which is the intersection between prayer and miracles. Let me just explain that very briefly. There is, a, there is an intersection between prayer and miracles. You can't really talk about one sensibly without talking about the other, because one aspect of prayer is that you're getting what you're asking for. And that, by definition, certainly by my definition, is a miracle, because it, it means that something is happening outside of the course of natural processes that would have otherwise not happened if you hadn't asked, uh, you're, so in, in that way, prayer becomes a little bit like an incantation. I, I, open, I open my fridge, I don't have milk. I close my fridge, I pray, and through some processes, whether they seem natural or unnatural, I get milk. But the reason I get milk is not because of those natural intervening processes. It's because I asked for it. That's that's where the miracle comes in. If I had not asked for it, maybe I would not have gotten it. Which one of you would um, give your child a stone when he asks for bread? But I would go back to an earlier question. Why on earth are you making your child ask for bread? Since you know what he needs, what, what's the point of making your child ask for bread? Now, I would say that if you're a good parent, your child should never ask for bread because they will always have it. Mark 11, scroll to verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree. They, I'm sorry. They saw the fig tree withered away. To its roots. This was the fig tree that Jesus cursed, by the way, 21. And Peter uh, remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed 
has withered. Okay, just a quick pause here. Some Christians will try to allegorize this and say, well, you know, Jesus cursing a fig tree, that doesn't that makes sense uh, literally. So really the fig tree represents and, you know, it becomes uh, parabolic almost. It's, it's a parable here. Um, it's a metaphor. But this actually makes hash of the idea of it being a metaphor because they come back to it. And Peter says, look right there. You see, that's the tree you cursed. <laughs> okay, so it, it doesn't leave a lot of room to, uh, to read this as a metaphor. Uh, Jesus answered then. So he's going to teach a message on top of this supposedly literal event that someone is writing down as supposedly remembered history. Jesus answered uh, them, have faith in God truly. I say to you, now, you know you can take this seriously, people, because he said, truly, if he, if he had just said, I say to you, who knows, but truly, I say to you, he really means it. So what is it he really means? Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. There's, there's the catch right there. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Okay, 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Well, I wonder where prosperity religion came from. Anyone? <laughs> Anyone? Um, I wonder where they got some of the ideas uh, that they got. Now, you can argue, I mean, the, the Christian has some room to argue that the reason we don't see mountains being picked up and thrown into the sea is because no one has enough faith to do it. But, but the only thing separating the geography of the world from being rearranged is the amount of faith you have when you pray for it. That really turns prayer into something like an incantation. I used that word earlier. Uh, I use it often. It becomes an incantation that if you say it just right, and by just right, it's just right in your heart, you will receive it. And, and by the way, what are your expectations of prayer? Christians always try to, uh, to, to argue this part of the passage away because the last thing they want is for people praying to have some kind of expectation of prayer. Because if there is an expectation of prayer, then prayer can be falsified. And if prayer is falsified, your religion is falsified. So... Prayer can never be falsified. So Christians will fight this tooth and nail to the death because it is the death. It is the death of their religion if Jesus means what it sounds like he's saying. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. That's the expectation. When you pray, you shouldn't pray with, oh, well, you know, whatever, your will be done, I'll, I'll take it. 
or leave it. You know, if you don't want me to have it, uh, that's fine. I'm okay with that too. That is not how Jesus is telling them to pray, at least right here. He is telling them to pray with a kind of confidence that says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have already received it. That's the confidence that you have to go to prayer with. That's the expectation that you have to have. And then if you don't get it, then then maybe the reason is because you didn't believe it hard enough. But Jesus says, if you believe it hard enough, if you believe it as if you have already received it, it will be yours. And he doesn't put any caveats around that. He just doesn't. Christians will scramble to come up with ways to explain this verse away because it it makes prayer falsifiable or it makes your faith falsifiable because you prayed for something and it didn't happen, so your faith wasn't good. Or you prayed for something and your faith was good, but it didn't happen. That means your religion isn't any good. They cannot have that. It cannot mean that. Jesus must unsay this. And they will go through all manner of contortions to make him unsay it. Uh, Let's look at one more. John 14, starting with verse 12. I tell you the truth. Uh, Once again, you can really, you can trust it now because he, he says he's telling the truth. It's a very interesting choice. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. Just before this, let me just give it a a tiny bit of context. This is a a conversation that Jesus is having with Philip and the other disciples. seems, seems to be focused on Philip, and if he's trying to get Philip to understand that Jesus and the Father are one. They're really one. And he says, if if you don't believe my words, just at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. And so in that context, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me, okay, not just the disciples, folks, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. Wow. Wow. Anyone that opens the door pretty pretty wide, doesn't it? And and it doesn't seem to close the door temporally. In other words, you know, the time of the disciples or the time of the early church, some would say, you know, that that power went away. No, anyone who believes in me will do what will they do? The same works I have done. Well, just go back then in your inventory of miraculous works that Jesus did. Walking on water. Anyone can do it. Jesus says anyone can do it. Anyone. Turn water into wine. Anyone can do it. Anyone. What else did he do? Uh, He healed uh, the blind, deaf, uh, and sick in other ways. Uh, Anyone can do it. He raised the dead. Anyone can do it. That's the message here. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be a high priest to do any of this stuff now and access the power of God. Anyone can do it. 
What are the restrictions? Well, so far we've we've been given one. Believe in me. Boy, that still seems to be pretty broad. Verse 13. Is it clear it up here? You can ask for anything. Anything. You can, wait a minute, no. You can only ask for things that I think advance the kingdom. No, that's not what he said. You can ask for anything. There is a proviso, though. Always read the fine print, kids. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Christians glom onto this so hard. They read so much more into this than I think is, is actually there. Because what they want to turn that into is anything according to my will, which is to say, if it's something that I wanted in the first place, if it's something that I was going to do in the first place, then you ask for that and you'll get it. That's That waters down the entire passage. That takes away everything that this passage was saying when you read it that way. That is not what Jesus said. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it. And why would he do it? Why? So that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes. So he's, he's um, clarifying it once again in verse 14. In case you missed verse 12 and 13, here comes a final clarification. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I skipped a a little piece of this verse up here in verse 12. So I'm going to read the entire verse 12 for you so that you get the other little um, the other little punch. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And there you have it. This is the intersection between miracles and prayer. And I think this is important to uh, the Jews to hear, because before... You know, if if manna was going to rain from heaven, God had to do it, or the special man, uh, Moses, had to ask for it. Uh, you know, if you want water to come from a rock, Moses has to strike it with his magic stick. You know, there. how do you access God's power? Because that's what we really want. We want God's power in our lives. How do we access that? We don't have any more prophets. The temple's gone. We don't have any more priests. How do we get that now? And Jesus says, anyone can access it now. You don't need all of that stuff. All the power of God, it is at your disposal. And if you believe and you ask in my name, I promise all of that power that you read about in the Old Testament, all of that power that you, that you have seen me exercise here on earth, all of that power will still be present even without a temple and without priests and without prophets. All of it 
is still available. I think, I believe that that is the ultimate message of prayer that Jesus is giving. This is, this is not exactly how Christians teach it, because I don't, I don't think they have the, the fuller context that I've provided in the first hour um, of this podcast. No, once again, I could be wrong, so that's fine. We're, we're talking about um, hermeneutics and explicating passages in very old books that are translated out of the original language, and we, we don't know. There's, there's so much that we don't know, but I, I think that this is what the writers probably had in mind. So when I talk about the red letters of Jesus, um, this is what I think is being said in, in the name of Jesus. I could be wrong. Christians don't talk about it the way I talk about it. They actually talk about it, um, well, it depends on which Christians you're talking about. The more Pentecostal kind of Christians, they talk about it the way it's obviously read. And the other more mainstream Christians talk about it in a way that takes all of the power out of the equation. Jesus here, though, just focusing on red letters, the things that Jesus said. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done, and even greater works. What are greater works? He raised the dead. What are greater works? I can, I can think of some greater works. Uh, how about wiping out the coronavirus? Who, who prayed for that? Because it hasn't happened yet. But, you know, if you pray long enough, and if the scientists keep doing good work, it'll be wiped out. And then you can go back and say, well, prayer did it. You see, I moved that mountain. That was me. And, and by the way, this is, <laughs> this is how Christians reason. You can't prove that it wasn't because of my prayer. You'll do even greater works. I would just say that when Jesus cured diseases, they were cured right away. You know, if he's, if he's making a lame person walk, it's not that Jesus blesses them and then after seven surgeries and a long, painful rehabilitation that he can walk again. That's not how it worked. So get away from here with that crap. That's, that's not the miracle that Jesus is talking about at all. Even greater works. So what are greater works? Heck, I would, I'd be satisfied with just legitimately watching someone walk on water. I think that's pretty trivial. I mean, not easy, but trivial. It's, it doesn't make any sense to do it, but sure, show me that. Don't even worry about the greater works. Just show me the works that uh, he did. So prayer is a way of accessing miracles because it is the way of accessing God. And accessing God is the entire project of religion. Jesus had to put all of this weight on prayer and power, because before all of that was seen through the temple. In one of the passages uh, that I went over, if I had read a little bit further, it would have said something to the effect, uh, and by the way, when you pray, be sure to forgive anyone that you have something against. And that way, the Father can forgive you. Well, 
it's arguable that the main purpose of the temple was as a conduit for the sacrifices. And the main purpose for the sacrifices was to forgive sins. You don't have that anymore. So that's now given to the power of prayer that you can forgive sins or, or have sins forgiven directly without killing an animal at a temple. Okay. I think those are enough passages for now. So what should our expectations of prayer be? I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time on this. We're almost at two hours. We didn't do any of our segments. Uh, but don't worry, I'll, I'll catch up on some of the segments another time. We, we knew that this was going to be a long one because we're talking about the intersection between prayer and miracles. But what about the expectations? Well, we, we touched on some of the t- uh, expectations earlier, didn't we? And the expectation is that you have to pray with the expectation that you're already getting what you're praying for. Now, what we're not given, you know, if there are some forbidden things to pray for, we're not really given a list of that. We're not given a sense of what you can't pray for. For instance, Jesus doesn't say, oh, by the way, you can't pray for money. That, that would have been an obvious thing to say, because let's face it, if you, if you had a genie and you could get three wishes and you couldn't use as one of your wishes that you get three more wishes, okay, then the first thing you're probably going to ask for is a billion dollars. Maybe a hundred billion. You know what? Let's just be safe. A trillion dollars. If you can ask for a trillion dollars, you're gonna you're gonna ask for a trillion dollars. <laughs> right? Let's let's be honest. Now, uh, your mom also has cancer, so let's go ahead and get mom cured of cancer. But I bet you ask for the trillion dollars first. Or if you just don't want to look like a douche, maybe you'll ask for it second. But you want to make sure that you don't accidentally fritter your wishes away by bad wording. So you've got to get that trillion dollars in there pretty early, I'm guessing. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, you can't ask for money. He doesn't say you can't ask for a new carriage, a new horse, a new house. He doesn't say you can't ask for uh, a lot of grain in, in your fields, a good harvest. There's there's nothing in there that uh, that says you you can't ask for this, and it seems like if these were restrictions, they would they would be mentioned. Now some would say, yeah, but you've got to use reason. For instance, you can't ask for things that are counter to the nature of Jesus and God. You can't ask, for instance, for God to die. God can't die. He wouldn't grant that wish. Um, he can't give you, you know, sexual relations with all of the women that you want, because that would be adulterous and also bad for the women. Uh, you can't ask for that. So Christians would say, even though that sort of thing is not mentioned, that should be obvious. 
And, you know, when it says in his name, well, part of asking for things in his name is asking for things according to his will. And so in today's prayers, you hear a phrase, you know, we ask in accordance with your will. And then if you don't get something, then the out is, well, it wasn't according to God's will. It wasn't according to God's will that uh, that war end. He wanted that war to go on for more years. I'm sorry. Uh, it was a good ask, except it wasn't in accordance to his will, and therefore it wasn't really in his name, and so you don't get it. Uh, you can't ask for your favorite sports team to win. That doesn't stop uh, people from doing it. But, you know, these are some of the examples where Christians would say, you know, you have to use your common sense here. The problem is the passages, the red letters, do not leave room for that kind of common sensing. Because what, the, what you're really doing is you're trying to apply restrictions to what Jesus said so that it's not made a mockery of later. Because what Jesus says seems to open up prayer to falsifiability. And if a thing can be falsified, it will be. Especially if it's, if it's something miraculous. It will be. And so what Christians, what mainstream Christians would say is you can't have expectations. There are no expectations that can be imposed on prayer. I've, I've talked to these Christians on air. You, you cannot. It is, there are zero expectations that you can ever have of God because God never owes you anything. Ever. And yet Jesus says, yeah, hey, ask. Have faith. Ask in my name. I'll do it. Furthermore, he says, the only way you can expect to get it is if you ask believing that you have already received it. That goes completely counter to the narrative that you should not ask for things with great expectations. All right, I think that's enough. Next week, the very first of the member podcasts begin, and we're also getting into the book. I'm not, I wasn't saving discussion of the book just for, for members. Okay, that, that's not what was in my mind when I started down this path. I really did want to cover some background before we get to the book. And uh, I think all of these uh, subjects are important, important background. But also, I wanted to give people a chance to read the book. So if you're hearing this now, you still have a week to get started on the book because the book is the background knowledge that you need to have to understand what's coming in the next several weeks. And it's not going to be a chapter a week. It's, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it through. We're going back to a one-hour format, so we're going to get as much as we can done in an hour. But I will be doing commentaries uh, on the things that I've written. And uh, so let me, let me just invite you, don't skip the introduction. We're going to start with the introduction because a lot of the meat is in the introduction. I don't believe in writing throwaway uh, introductions. If, if it wasn't important to the material, I wouldn't write it down. So um, 
we're gonna we're gonna talk about the introduction. We might get through the entire introduction. I don't know. We might spend a couple of weeks on the introduction, but uh, if you have read the book but you skipped the introduction because introductions are usually kind of boring, go back and read the introduction. That's what we're going to pick up on next week. If you have not yet become a patron, do so uh, at patreon.com slash red letters. And while you're at it, pick up uh, your free copy of the book, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Moral and Practical Teachings in History. Otherwise, pick it up at Amazon, $4.99, uh, paperback, $14.99. Um, pick it up on my uh, site, Skeptics and Seekers dot squarespace.com uh, and uh, up on the upper left hand side you'll see several tabs the first tab is red letters uh, click on the click on that you can buy the book there through uh, PayPal uh, I think it's a payment uh, there for 499 but the best way to do it is just to become a patron pick it up for free uh, and hang around for the for a few weeks uh, we'd love to have you we're going to put out the uh, newsletter uh at the end of the month, and by the time you hear this podcast, the newsletter should be uh, coming out there pretty soon for all of those who are patrons. Don't end your patronage before you get the newsletter, uh, because I I will be just doing a mailing list based on the people who are patrons at that time. Okay, so if you don't get your newsletter, it may be because you stopped your patronage before I sent out the newsletter. Uh, so don't do that. Uh, and I will send it out before the next podcast, the first podcast that is for pay comes out. And so if you're if you're in it just for the free month, don't worry, you'll get uh, you'll get the newsletter uh, along with everyone else there. Anything else? Okay, so that's uh, that's the show for now. Uh, I will see you in the comments. If I'm not as active in the comments, uh, don't worry, just keep coming. I'll be there. I I see all. And uh, I will do uh, I will do entire shows just based on your comments. So I, I assure you, uh, I am uh, compiling the interesting comments to uh, that that need more conversation. And uh, I will be there as I can. Just remember that I do this, but I also have a real job that uh, eats up a lot of time and uh, mental cycles. Thank you so much. If this is the last time uh, I am speaking to you, uh, hopefully I will see you over at 4S. Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. It will be automatically in the podcast feed, the same feed that you had for Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, it will be in that feed. So you don't have to change a thing. Uh, shows will be coming out. Skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. You can email me directly. Uh, redlettersbook at gmail.com. Uh, my old email address is still active. Skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. So I look forward to having further conversations with you. Have a great week. Bye-bye.